You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hi, please stand for the reading of God's Word. My name is Liv, and I'll be reading from Revelation 1, 12 through 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, like burnished bronze, were fined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pause a moment in prayer. God, we ask that you would show your glory through your son, Jesus Christ, in your word, and you would transform us and fill our hearts with your presence. We ask, God, that you would be magnified and glorified and worshiped in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Imagine uh, for a moment that you receive a call from the White House informing you that the President of the United States, Joe Biden, has decided to come visit your home. Now, regardless of your political stance, I'm certain that hosting the President would be a tremendous honor, requiring meticulous planning and preparation. For one thing, the Secret Service would conduct thorough assessments, establish secure perimeters, and coordinate various logistics to ensure the president's safety. Now picture yourself navigating through layers of planning and preparing, cleaning your house, fixing things that are broken, beautifying your home in anticipation for this distinguished guest. You'd consider every detail from offering the president coffee, what kind of coffee or tea, deciding what questions to ask. Yet let's be realistic. The chance of such a visit is not just close to zero, but zero. Sorry, uh, that will not happen. But what if I assured you with 100% certainty that there is someone far more distinguished and with greater authority preparing to visit 
us. Jesus, in the fullness of his glory, is preparing to return. And not just pay us a visit, but to make all things right. To restore every broken thing in the world and ultimately cover all the earth with the full knowledge of his glory. He's not just the leader of a nation. He's the ruler of the universe, the sovereign king over all creation and the righteous judge over every nation. And this morning, we will explore how we can make room in our hearts for the return of Jesus in all of his glory. And as we delve into John's vision of Jesus in glory, we'll seek to understand, number one, the the nature of his glory. Secondly, we'll see why it's crucial to make room for it. And then lastly, how practically we can prepare for his glory. Through answering these three questions, my prayer is that we'll cultivate a deeper love for Jesus and a growing hopeful anticipation for his second coming. So let's look at the first question. What is the glory of Jesus? Well, the glory of of God in the Bible is very difficult to define or describe. It's, It's almost like trying to fill or pour every drop of earth's water into a small vial. It's almost impossible. We really can't do justice by trying to define the infinite glory of God with finite expressions of descriptive words in the limited time that we have. But we will certainly try with the help of pastors and theologians who have thought deeply and studied widely about God's glory. And most importantly, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us to teach us, to show us what this glory is. Well, one concise definition of God's glory is this, that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. God's glory is the infinite beauty, the infinite majesty, the infinite greatness and perfections of God. It completes us, it fills us, it satisfies us like nothing else ever could. It's what we all long for, even though we may not know the name of our heart's deepest longing, it's actually the glory of God that we all hunger for. As we look in the New Testament, glory predominantly refers to the revelation of God's character and presence in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's glory displayed most clearly in the life of Jesus. Jesus is depicted as the radiance of divine glory. In specific events throughout Jesus' life, which is evident at his birth, also during his earthly ministry, the glory displayed in his miracles as well as in his transfiguration. And in the Gospel of John, there is an emphasis on Jesus' impending death as the hour of glory. And further manifestations of God's glory in Christ extend to Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and in our focus today also in Jesus' anticipated second coming. And in our text today, John sees a vision of Jesus in glory we are waiting for this Advent season. 
And when we consider what is the glory of God, we have to look no further than the detailed description of Jesus who captures and displays God's glory. Looking at verses 12 through 16, John, he begins to describe his vision of Jesus, portrayed as one like a son of man who is clothed in splendor and divine majesty, reminiscent of the vision that Daniel had in the Old Testament in chapter 7, signifying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior of the world, now glorified, preparing for his return. And do you believe this? Do you receive him as the Messiah? The details with which John describes our glorified Lord is is amazing. John saw his long robe and golden sash representing Jesus' role as judge, king, and prophet, symbolizing his dignity and his authority. We can't help but also think about Jesus as our high priest, the one who sympathizes with us in our weakness and brings us into a right relationship with God, not through the sacrifice of an animal, but through the offer of his own life laid down on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for us. Not only is Jesus the Messiah, not only is Jesus the Messiah and high priest, John sees Jesus with white hair like wool, signifying his, his wisdom, affirming his deity and holiness, drawing parallels to the ancient of days referred to again in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. Now in the Eastern culture, white hair also commands respect and it is a symbol of wisdom. And our glorified Jesus is wise in all that he does and says. So we are to listen to him. Jesus is not only our glorious Lord, but also our trusted, wise confidant. But there's even more that, Jesus, that John sees in, in Jesus in our text today as, as he continues on to, to paint a picture of God's glory made tangible in Christ. Not only does Jesus embody truth and wisdom itself, Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire, symbolizing his discerning gaze and possessing spiritual x-ray vision that consumes impurity. Jesus sees all of you, your intentions, your motives, your true heart's desire. He sees you and he sees all of you. John can't seem to look away from feasting his eyes on the glory of Jesus and continues to intently look at his glorious presence from head to toe, literally in this text. Jesus sees that, uh, John sees rather that Jesus appears to have shining bronze feet refined as in a furnace, which suggests Jesus as judge. We know that people who are judged came before the king's feet And whatever the king decreed would be the final word which no one could undo. You see, all of Jesus' judgments are altogether righteous and good because he is altogether righteous and good. He is truth and wisdom, and he 
judges righteously. John not only sees the glory of Jesus, but he hears his glorious voice. John says his voice is like the roar of many waters, which is pointing to Jesus' divine authority whenever he speaks. And when Jesus speaks, we should take heed to listen and obey because God the Son is speaking. When Jesus speaks and when he judges, he does so as one who has ultimate authority. In Jesus' right hand, John sees seven stars, which we are told later that they are the angels or messengers to the churches. This shows us that Jesus rules over and builds up his church. So we are to be encouraged and comforted because we see that our glorified Lord has kept his promise when he told his church that he will never leave us nor forsake us and that he will always be with us until the very end of the age. Take comfort, my brothers and sisters, in that our glorious Lord is present and actively at work in his church, no matter how frail or imperfect it may seem at times. Jesus is also present with us through his spirit, especially in times of suffering. Now, on the flip side, the fact that Jesus rules over and builds his church should also serve as a warning to us if we ever find ourselves standing opposed to Jesus and his church. John also sees a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, symbolizing his divine judgment against rebellious people who stand against God and his rule. Jesus' judgments are precise. They are effective and decisive over his enemies. The word of the Lord is powerful and mighty. Now, who would choose to stand against our glorious Lord, whose words are proclaimed like a sword out of his mouth. Be warned, my friends, that the second coming of Jesus means divine judgment against all the enemies of Jesus and his church. Jesus speaks truth and discernment, and each of us will absolutely fall short of his righteousness on that day. And it doesn't matter how how good of a person you think you are or the number of good deeds that you have done. He sees our hearts and we all fall short of his holy standards. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the only way to avoid God's impending judgment is believing in this glorious Lord Jesus and repenting of our sins, for he is gracious and forgiving. So if you don't know this Jesus, I invite you to consider him today. Because the same Jesus who will judge all of his enemies one day extends his grace and mercy to you this day. So for you, today is the day of salvation. And I invite you to, to repent, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Finally, John beholds Jesus' face like the sun in full strength, symbolizing the beaming light of his blessing, dignity, and victory, which is reminiscent of the transfiguration on the mountain during Jesus' earthly ministry. 
So Jesus, he embodies the glory of God, and John gives us a very descriptive picture of what the glory of God looks like in Jesus. Having heard descriptions of the glory of God shown in Jesus, what is your response? Is this someone worth worshiping? And what does the glory of God through Jesus have to do with me? And this takes us to our second point. Why do we need to make room for his glory? Well, the glory of God demands a response. And for the church, every disciple of Jesus is called to reflect and share in the glory of God, especially in his and our suffering, and also to proclaim God's glory to the world. This is an astounding responsibility God is giving to us. Jesus shares the glory he has with us so that we can reflect his glory in our own lives. This is a great honor, but also an exciting prospect for us of this fruitful and faithful life before God where we get to experience God's glory and share in his glory. We are all created to worship this glorious Jesus and focus our hearts on the beauty, majesty, and the greatness of our Lord. In other words, we were created to feast on the glory of God. Now, the tension that all of us live in is whose glory are we pursuing and desiring? Am I pursuing my glory independent of God in the pursuit of created things that will enlarge my own ego? Or am I pursuing the infinite glory of Jesus that I get to partake in? I invite each of us today to make room for his glory in our hearts, in our family, in our relationships, in our church. And why should we make room for his glory? The short answer is that We were created and designed by God to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Some of you Presbyterians may recall that this is the answer to the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Romans 11.36 clearly lets us know that for from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen, it says. God put within every human being this longing and desire to pursue some kind of glory which can only be fulfilled by God's glory. You see, the entrance of sin infected our natural design to glorify God. It brought death. It severely cut us off from a vital relationship with our glorious God. So humanity's heart has been aimlessly wandering and trying desperately to satisfy the hunger for glory in created things which were never meant to bear the weight of the glory we are all looking for. What lesser glory are you chasing to fill you? Many of, many of us turn to money or the pursuit of fame or power, achievement, popularity, sexual gratification, Security, perhaps a a perfect relationship, or simply just more stuff. But over time, we are left each time 
with more hunger and more thirst in our soul. Friends, don't settle on the pursuit of lesser glories, on created things, because you were meant to be satisfied only by the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Jesus, in all of his glory displayed before John, is the reason why we need to put away lesser glories and make room for the glory of Jesus. The vision of Jesus, the vision that, that, that John saw and witnessed, is the same Jesus who wants to take residence in our hearts today, and the same Jesus who will return in his fullness on that day. So let's make room in our hearts for him today. You were created to worship, serve, and be satisfied by this King of glory who is preparing to return. Are you ready to receive him? Do you have room in your heart for his glory to fill and satisfy you? I hope it's an amen and yes. See, we want to make room, but, but I think we all need help in how to make room for his glory, which takes us to our last point. How do we make room for his glory? Upon seeing the vision of Jesus in his glory, John is overwhelmed in the presence of our glorious Lord. John, he falls prostrate in fear because of the power and holiness of Jesus. John is, is in a position of reverence and submission before the glory of Jesus. So how do we make room for his glory? Now what we can't do is to will ourselves to make room for his, for his glory. You see, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, strengthening you to make room for his glory, you will inevitably fall short. Even to make room for him in our hearts, we need the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Thankfully, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus and to put a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus, to remind us of the words of Jesus. And when we ask the Spirit of God to help us to make room in our hearts, He will do it. And the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus' victory over death, sin, and Satan, the glory of Jesus' resurrection, the glory of Jesus' ascension, the glory of Jesus' eminent return are all received by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts who enables us to believe and understand. It is also by the work of the Holy Spirit who redirects our affections and desires toward Jesus and His glory. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, to expose the glories competing with the glory of Jesus. Where are you seeking your own glory, meaning, worth, and value on your own terms for your own glory apart from Jesus? Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your hearts and confess those before the Lord. The act of glorifying someone or something is a way to basically ascribe value and worth to whatever you are glorifying. Now, what is unique about the glory of Jesus is that he doesn't need us to glorify him to make him more glorious because he is already infinitely glorious and intrinsically glorious even before he created you or me. 
So unlike earthly beings, God doesn't need us to glorify Him. But really, the only right, the only right response to the glory of Christ when we see it, when we come before it, when we experience it, is to worship Him. The psalmist tells us to sing, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. So how do we make room for His glory? We are to intentionally worship, exalt, and glorify Jesus for who He is and what He has done. We can number His attributes and count His blessings and give Him the credit and glory for all that He is and all that He does. This helps us make room in our hearts for His glory so that we can experience a greater measure of His glory than we have ever before. His glory doesn't get bigger when we worship Him, but when we make room, our experience of God's vast glory intensifies in our hearts. Jesus does not leave John in a state of fear and trembling when he witnesses the infinite and terrifying presence of God. But instead, Jesus places his right hand on John to comfort him, saying, don't be afraid. You see, Jesus, he is our only comfort in this life, isn't he? So we don't need to be afraid of coming before the presence of God. Jesus covers us securely with his righteousness. And then John begins to hear Jesus' words as Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Affirming his divine nature in verse 17, he uses the word I am, the covenant name of God, emphasizing his eternal and uncreated existence. He has made a covenant with us and he has chosen us in Christ. And as the first and the last, Jesus declares his authority to speak and act in the world and in your life. In verse 18, Jesus further declares himself as the living one, connecting his divine attributes with his earthly ministry. He emphasizes his victory over death, proclaiming, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This declaration underscores the transformative power of Jesus' death and resurrection, making him as the eternal source of life. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins so that we may have life and cross over from death to life and display the glorious salvation of Christ in our lives until he returns. So we praise him for being the source of life. Let's thank him for his victory over death, which no longer has a hold on us as we eagerly wait for Jesus to fully and finally glorify us in our bodies as he is glorified. Because at his second coming, we will be able to experience in full what we experience in part right now. We will be able to see him face to face on that day instead of as a mere reflection as we do today. And what a day it will be. I can't wait to see him in his fullness and experience his glory in full where all of my longings will be satisfied because we get to experience his glory fully.
Jesus further proclaims that he has the the keys of death and Hades. This imagery signifies exclusive authority over the realm of the dead, granting Jesus the power to control access to it. For Christians, this proclamation assures us that death is under the dominion of Christ and is a servant rather than a master. And through his suffering and victory over death, Jesus holds the keys to bring the dead to life and also has authority over the eternal destinies of every soul. Do you believe Jesus has the power to save your unbelieving family member or friend? Yes and amen. We ought to believe that. Jesus is not only the source of life, but he has the keys to death and Hades. Just as Jesus has saved you, Jesus is willing and able to save your loved ones. So pray. Pray knowing that it is God's will that people be saved. So we are praying for God's will. And what's more is that praying for the salvation of others and sharing the good news of Jesus in turn creates more room in God's family for Jesus' glory to shine before the world who alone has the power to save. And in closing, we're called to reflect on the glory of Christ that calls us into total reverence and submission to Him. See, we have glimpsed His magnificence today, His eternal wisdom, His discerning vision, His righteous authority and victory over death. And John's vision leaves no room for passivity or complacency in our Christian life. Christ's glory compels us to wholeheartedly worship him in the presence of his glory, not because Jesus needs it, but because he is worthy and glorious in his nature. His glory elicits our worship and demands that we proclaim the hope found in his salvation until he returns. Let's abandon our attempts at seeking glory in fading objects and instead set our eyes on the infinite and unfading glory of Jesus who is our most treasured and valued person. By the Spirit's enabling power, may we make every effort to make room in our hearts for the second coming of Jesus because He is coming and glorify Jesus in our lives as we await the majestic day when Christ's kingdom is fully and finally established in the new heaven and the new earth. And as we make room for Jesus in our hearts this Advent season, let's join in creation's call in anticipation of Jesus' glorious return and sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. God, we ask that you will show your glory in your Son, Jesus Christ, to us through the power, the illumination of your Holy Spirit. 
as we now turn our hearts to receive communion and sing about you, Lord, would you show yourself and may we respond in adoration, in exaltation, and in worship of our glorious Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.